Um, well, I appreciate you, Sean, for, for taking the time today. Very, very excited to talk about a, a plethora of things that that sort of the fund is doing. And it's sort of a personal side for me, you know, as my, as my wife has type one uh, diabetes as well. And I've kind of not coming from that world, you know, looking at it, you know, when you come firsthand with it, it's, it's a different world, right? You see day to day what, what people deal with, you know, and it's, it's coming, not coming from that. It's, uh, it sucks. So uh, I'm super happy to talk about perhaps some innovation in the space. But uh, before we get to sort of the fund and, and what it's about and its mission and vision, let's kind of talk about your background or quick and why you decided to to take on this mission. Well, sure. And hey, thanks a lot for uh, for having me. And and I look forward to getting around and uh, talking about your wife's experience too, if it, if, because it's yeah. uh, this, this is a hard one. And you'll see, I, you, you've seen firsthand why um, why it's so important to do something other than insulin therapy and, and get toward a cure of this disease. So yeah. thanks a lot for having me on for that. Uh, in terms of me, I, um, from a personal perspective, both the father and a son of a type 1 diabetic, uh, mm. my son has had type 1 diabetes since October of 2002. So we're at the 19-year point. He was uh, just two years old when he was diagnosed mm. with type 1. And at that age, it comes on very, very quickly, kind of really out of the blue. Um, my father was a type 1 diabetic basically since I was born, he was diagnosed um, when uh, when my mom was pregnant with me. Hmm. Um, he was an older diagnosis. He was about 25 um, at, at diagnosis. And unfortunately, in 2012, he died of, of complications of, um, of the disease, specifically of, of kidney failure. So from my perspective, this is uh, this is quite personal. The way that I found my way to the to the fund, I guess, had a lot to do with my my professional career. I, I was um, college. I was a, a naval officer for a short period of time, for about four years, on a fast frigate that was uh, in the Pacific Fleet. Spent a lot of time over in the Persian Gulf in the early '90s. Um, then got out of the Navy and went to to law school. After law school, I ended up working for one of the big law firms in in Boston and focused really on the, the private equity and, uh, and venture capital investing side, ultimately really focusing on um, large scale growth acquisitions uh, and principally working for an investment firm based in, out of Boston named Bank Capital. Uh, so by the time kind of I got into my fourth, fifth, sixth year there, I was doing basically all my work for Bain. And this was at a period of time when the private equity industry was really exploding in kind of the you know early 2000s. And they were sort of changing from kind of these niche firms to really big right. institutions mm -hmm. um, that were really powerful sources of capital um, that were really attractive to endowments and to, uh, to pensions as, as a way to kind of um, take longer term risk to, to grow their, their capital bases. And so the firms like Bank Capital needed to, needed to grow and institutionalize. And so when that happens, you ended up, bring, you ended up bringing in the lawyers. So I, I started <laughs> in 2005 at, at Bank Capital as its first general counsel and um, launched kind of a 14-year career there of sort of building out what it meant to be kind of an institutionalized um, yep. uh, uh, business and ended up leaving that in, in 18. But in the last few years I was there, I, I had been associated with the, the principal global organization in type 1 diabetes, which is JDRF. I had been yep. associated with that, honestly, as a volunteer, as was my wife, basically from the moment of diagnosis of my son, Finn, back in 2002. Um, it's a great community. You get to know an awful lot of people. It's a great support system. And they're the world's leader in, in funding research in the disease. So kind of those two worlds collided in around mm -hmm. 2015. And I was approached, you know, Sean, would you be interested in trying to put together a business plan 
for how we can do some venture investing in, in type one diabetes. So, uh, yep. so that was sort of what led me to that and kind of the summer fall of, of 2015. Um, and that's about when we got going. I love it. I love blending sort of venture into traditional sectors, let's say that really hasn't innovated in, you know, venture kind of hits every part of, of sort of startups these days, but it seems like medical sort of devices and hardware and, and sort of have, have kind of been, you know, left behind a little bit, but talk a little bit about, I guess, the fund itself, but maybe what its vision is and how it's structured, I think is really interesting as well. Sure. And your point on, um, on medical devices and things like that, the venture industry doesn't get terrifically involved in it. There's a med tech sort of sector of yeah. Apple yeah. and private equity, but it's actually a sector that is now at this point, pretty dominated by, by big companies. And you've seen yep. it firsthand in type one diabetes, the instrument market, the device market in type one is pretty good. I mean, compared to my son was diagnosed 19 mm -hmm. years ago. I mean, this was mixing three different insulins, all shots. Yep. We would do as many as gosh, on a bad day, you could stick his finger 12 times. Fast yeah. forward to, to do a blood sugar check. Fast forward to today, the devices are really good in blood sensing technology and insulin pumps have even connecting those two. The thing that we saw that was missing, though, is that the venture capital business, the life sciences venture capital business is actually really robust. And right now we are living yep. through the biggest yeah. boom yep. ever in, in life sciences venture capital investing. That sector wasn't paying any attention mm -hmm. to cure therapeutics in type 1 diabetes. So Type 1 diabetes, for you know, for your listeners, is a disease very distinct from type 2 diabetes. Type 1 is an autoimmune disease. It actually has a lot more in common with diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis and lupus and inflammatory bowel disease and celiac diseases like that. Otherwise, healthy people will suddenly find that their, their immune system has started to attack their own pancreas. Your pancreas right. makes insulin and insulin is what responds to your energy levels and the food that you intake and everything else to basically metabolize sugar and keep you alive. Well, in a type one diabetic, suddenly that that ability to produce your own insulin goes away. Yeah, and so without injections of insulin through some method or another, uh, that's your life support. You die. So you have you have to have injections of insulin. Yep. The industry, the venture capital industry, was not looking at opportunities to either stop that autoimmune reaction, which mm -hmm. is just about how every autoimmune disease is right. intervening with rheumatoid arthritis. You're intervening in the, the progression of multiple sclerosis or all, all of these other types of autoimmune diseases. There are, there are no therapies whatsoever to so-called modify this disease. You'll hear that phrase a lot, disease-modifying therapies. Mm -hmm. There are zero in type 1 diabetes. Insulin was discovered 100 years ago. Hmm. And so a century later, we're still relying on this yeah. standard of care that looks at symptoms. The, you know, my son, your wife, develops high blood sugar and so they get insulin injections to bring that back down again. You're treating a symptom. You're constantly chasing your tail in type yep. of diabetes. And the industry hadn't invested in how to, um, how to actually get at root causes, number one, to stop the autoimmune reaction. And then for people who have full-blown type 1 diabetes, um, like, our, like our loved ones, how do you restore that beta cell function yeah. um, so that they can, they can make it naturally again? And so sitting in the perch of you know, world's leader in, in, in type 1 diabetes research, we say, all right, we have all of this great network. We know all of the researchers that are important to this disease. Yep. We this day, say we're one, two or three phone calls away from anyone on planet Earth that knows something important about yeah. That is an extraordinarily powerful asset. Yep. And we know all these clinicians, our family network, our, our patient network is, is massive, particularly in the United States, but, but also in Europe and Australia and worldwide. How can we pair that up with some of the expertise that we have in-house, people that understand the investing world, 
and make the case to the life sciences venture capital industry that you're missing this one. Yeah. 1.6 million Americans have type 1 diabetes, 20 million Americans around the world have it, and we're not even sure how many people have the autoantibodies right. who are at risk of developing the disease later on. And so that was sort of our idea. It's like, okay, well, what if, I, I just believe, you know, when you're trying to solve a problem, you say, all right, here's the problem. Nobody's investing in this disease just, d- despite all of this great research and everything. Here on this other side, we have this massive network and a little bit of expertise. How do we pair that together? What if we created an investment vehicle, the, the impact that it's seeking, and unless you focus on here yep. in your podcast, is impact investing, the impact that we are seeking is sure, ultimately a cure for type 1 diabetes, but the impact we're seeking in the first instance is getting the attention of the life sciences venture capitalists to invest in the disease. And why is that? They're sort of the missing puzzle piece between mm-hmm. you know this huge array of people in this very very complex healthcare system from you know philanthropies and governments and academic institutions that handle kind of basic research and that kind of stuff to the other side of the spectrum, which is like the big pharma companies and at least in the United States, the insurers are really important or you know in, in countries in Europe, obviously the big national health systems are 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 really important. Life sciences venture capital is sort of a connective tissue between them. They invest, they take massive risks. Yeah. binary risks of science that may or may not work that the pharma companies are simply not willing to take. They're not going to take mega big bets like that on things yep. that have been proven. They rely on venture capitalists to do that. And so our goal was to target directly at those people, get them involved, prime the pump, and treat this like the billions of dollar problem that it is. Um, that if they don't invest, the pharma companies aren't going to follow behind them. So uh, just really quick, maybe a little bit about sort of the venture philanthropy sort of model and construction yeah. of it. Like I said, JDRF is a, a public charity in the United States. We um, dropped a subsidiary underneath that, yep. uh, that it's its own vehicle. We operate it independently. It has its own board um, and we raise our own capital in addition to some capital that, that JDRF um, gave us. So, um, and then we've hired our own team, which is a group of life sciences, venture capitalists and, and hmm. young scientists. So people in the life sciences VC business tend to be kind of a blend between either scientists and medical doctors and investors. So mm-hmm. a lot of people that maybe get out of the PhD programs or, or get out of medical school and rather than going into sort of research or the clinic, they, they, they start working on how to invest in great science and great medicine um, to progress it. So it's a very, very specialized field. It's not going to be the same kind of people that you see at a, at a, at right. a tech capital firm. So anyway, we wanted to hire these particular specialists and work on a really small concentrated team. And then we raise money from the outside. To this, to this point, we've raised about $100 million in donor capital mm-hmm. for only 100 families. So we set okay. a relatively high bar because this is pretty risky stuff. And we wanted um, the families that that were going to be contributing to it to uh, be kind of under the tent. They're all under a confidentiality agreement, so they know what's going on in all these companies. Very exciting to them. I, I want to say as a point of pride, 100% of our donors have a direct connection to type 1 diabetes. Yeah. So this was sort of a, a thing where the group of us, you know, the T1D universe decided we were going to come in and, and make a difference here. So once once started, you have this sort of pool of capital. And then we're going out and looking for opportunities um, in which to invest. The idea would be that uh, we invest in early stage companies the same way that a venture capital yep. firm would invest. We, we buy the exact same securities. We do not make grants. Um, we don't buy you know, junior securities to them or anything. We buy the exact same securities. And our goal, which we've exceeded, by the way, in every single investment, is for every dollar we invest, we'd like to see at least $5 of life sciences VC money alongside us, because our goal 
from the beginning and from the beginning to this day is to kind of first catalyze a market in type one and then accelerate that market. And ultimately, and I think we're getting to this phase, start to guide that market uh, because the venture capital industry now knows who we are. And if mm -hmm. you're going to invest in type one diabetes, most of them will say they'd like to have us in the deal too, because um, yeah. we know the science better. So I want to talk a little bit about perhaps what you have invested in so far and what are the portfolio companies or, or just in general, what companies are you seeing doing really incredible stuff that maybe make you very excited about the possibilities of a cure or perhaps a giant leap forward in in sort of treatment or, or medical devices or the way insulin gets influx into to people's bodies like what's what's kind of going on in the space right now that you see that makes you excited let me sort of split out maybe categorize it a little bit first sure. and then we can dive in a little bit so i think like I, like I said maybe a few minutes ago in order to cure type 1 diabetes two things have to happen you have to stop the autoimmune reaction so you need an immune therapy second you have to protect and in many cases restore replace the beta cells um in 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 the pancreas that produce insulin or find some other way to make insulin. So it's sort of those two things have to those two things have to happen. And so across our portfolio now of nearly 30 companies, they'll fit into one of those categories. Some you can kind of debate which one they're in, but it, it, it's one of one of those one of those two things. We thought in kind of the early days of the fund that what we would do is say, all right, well, great. JDRF has this big research uh, portfolio. We work also with the Helmsley Charitable Trust, which is a, a big private foundation out of New York that's also, along with JDRF, really, you know, a world leader in, in type 1 diabetes and a lot of great academic centers in Europe and, and the U.S. What we thought is we'd kind of take the best research out of the tailpipe, you know, from, from yeah. those institutions, drop them into companies, bring together management teams, pull together a bunch of French capital, off we go. There are a couple that fit that mold, but not that many. Mm -hmm. What we've ended up doing, and I think it's a great example of an impact venture philanthropy model in life sciences um, and, and just the power of capital, is that we saw this massive second category, which is because we understood the science really well and we're in daily contact with the research staff at JRF, the research staff at Helmsley, this you know, vast resource, we understand, we think, the biological pathways that cause type 1 diabetes and the biological pathways for the destruction of beta cells. Over gotcha. Time, which is That's different. huge. That's huge. So to, to when you that. understand that though, yeah. and then you say, okay, it's hard to start these companies from scratch. And then you remember, we're saying, gosh, there's a, a lot of similarities between type, type 1 diabetes on the one hand and a lot of these other autoimmune diseases, right. particularly other autoimmune diseases of the gut. Type 1 is a gut disease. It's, it's a pancreatic disease. Our team of, the, of, invest, of venture capital invest, investors would basically categorize almost the entire market in other diseases, principally autoimmune right. diseases, and look at the science that they were working on. And so what our team ended up doing was approaching companies that already existed, that were already funded, maybe they'd done their A round or B round, or whatever, and went to the, the C-suite, to the chief scientific officers, the sure. chief medical officers, the CEOs, and said, we think that what you're working on would also work in type 1 diabetes. What would yep. you think adding type 1 as a second or a third indication is the, the phraseology they'll use. So, you know, it might be a company working on celiac or it might be a company working in MS or lupus, but we're, we recognize the science. And so you're going into the, at the, the executive level of these companies, not even the venture capitalists at the beginning and convincing the C-suites of these small companies that, hey, this would be really interesting. They in turn become advocates for us when they go to their, their venture capital syndicate 
and say, hey, look, hmm. in addition to being, you know, a company in disease A or B, right? What if we added type one as a third? The VCs like that. Yep. Because they look at that as a way to sort of hedge their bets a little and to add an additional kind of shot on goal. And we ended up building a portfolio using that model mm -hmm. um, over and over again, particularly through probably from like year two to year four of the, the fund. That became a real prominent portion of, of what we do. There are a lot of benefits to that. The companies already exist. That means they're already capitalized. It means yep. you, you sort of go in through the back door of all these venture capital portfolios. So where no one had been investing in type one before, now there are 30 venture capital firms who are hmm. invested alongside us in companies working on type one diabetes. 20 of them had never made an investment in type one wow. diabetes before five years ago when we started the fund. A lot of those, we came in kind of through the, through the back door, but now you're seeing kind of recidivism among these VCs. Sure. Yeah. They're like, wait, well, this is like massive white space. 20, 20 million people around the world have this disease and there are no cure therapies at all. Hmm. Where similarly sized diseases like MS or RA, which is about the same population right. size, will have 15 disease modifying therapies that are wow. on the market. And so they see dollar signs. Mm -hmm. A lot of times in philanthropy, that's sort of a dirty word. Right. I don't look at it that way at all because yeah. philanthropy alone is not going to cure disease. You cannot cure disease without the influx of billions of dollars of, uh, from the pharmaceutical industry. And those billions of dollars are not going to come unless life sciences VCs buy into it and take binary risk. That's the, that's the philosophy of this, this fund in a nutshell. And we've invested in against that over and over again, because that's, that's our method of, of creating impact. I know success is a really weird word, but maybe what has been some of the progress maybe that you've seen, whether it's, you know, through medical research, through startups, I guess, like, where are we at now? Yeah. You know, I for a person living with, with T1. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm split that answer into two. The first is uh, how I measure early success by mm -hmm. the creation of a market because mm -hmm. this stuff takes time. And oh, the yeah. second, I'll get to kind of clinical success. The financial success, I think, is literally irrefutable at this point. We've gone from almost nothing invested in this disease to we've now invested in the last five years. The fund itself invested about $70 million. We've attracted more than $550 million of venture capital money has been invested alongside us in um in our portfolio wow. and so it's not actually about our 70 it's about that more than half a billion dollars coming in from others not just because it's a bigger number my bias all along and it's probably formed by you know my experience in a firm like big capital is that if you get more smart people with capital focused on a problem like this your odds of success go up exponentially Mm -hmm. And so to get that group of people, which we know are prominent, which you know the, pharma, the pharmaceutical companies pay attention to, that the bankers pay attention to when they're thinking about taking these companies public, and four of our companies have gone public now. That kind of thing is just, there, there's a momentum in that that I think cannot be stopped. And so metric number one for me always was create a market. We don't know what the pathway will be to success from there, but I know that our odds of success go up dramatically. By now. On, the, on the clinical side, we have one of our companies is in a phase three trial. Uh, another is going into phase two right now, two more are in phase one and more than a dozen are preclinical. And we think we'll be in phase one within a couple of, uh, within a couple of um, years. Two have been bought by pharmaceutical companies. Four of them have gone public. You know, th there is now momentum in, in all of them. People get frustrated with the pace 
of, of biological of life sciences research. And, yeah. you know, I think it, it's an interesting side note. I think that frustration is only going to increase when, when everybody in the whole world saw that scientists and companies could create a vaccine for COVID and yeah. in, not, in nine months, like, okay, so that's all just been an excuse. Well, there's an awful lot of government money went into that. I mean, if, if you're, if, if, if the governments yep. of the world decided to put, you know, a hundred billion dollars toward type one research, my guess is we would probably get there a lot faster, but the practical reality of it is that from the recognition of a really good target, a really good therapeutic target to deliver to patients is best case is eight to 10 years, best case. Mm. It just takes a long time. Everything that we are seeing in our portfolio is, is, is strongly indicative of this is a disease that can be intercepted before, before dependence on, lifelong independence, uh, dependence on insulin. And that one I have real connection to. That that's that was my next question is 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 it even possible I guess right to get a cure or prevent do a sort of a, a pre, or is it more likely that it's possible to be proactive and be preventable for lifelong sort of dependency right if you catch it at a certain point in in a, in a person's life as a layperson that I, I believe what I, I'd say most uh, most scientists would agree with that it would be it will be easier to intercept this disease before full beta cell destruction than okay. it would be to have my son off an insulin pump one day. That's mm -hmm. a harder, that's a harder challenge. It kind of just right. makes sense almost mechanically, right? I mean, yep. the human body is extraordinary. I mean, your pancreas is firing, is it, it, firing off insulin when you're staring at a bagel. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. it, it, the, the efficiency yeah. is unbelievable. That's a very complicated thing to replicate. And I can come back to that in a second. We have a couple yeah. more companies that are really interested in that. Stopping an autoimmune reaction is something that science is doing over and over again across autoimmune disease. They're just not doing it in type one. Why is that? Well, I think there are a few different myths. First, you know, people just weren't in, investing in this space because I think a lot of confusion between type one and type two. There's yeah. this big perception that this is a pediatric disease when in fact, 50% of the people diagnosed with type one are over the age of 20. And that it's a small population. You look at VCs and when you tell them there's 20 million people have this disease, right. come on, no way. The fourth most prevalent autoimmune disease in the United States. And, and people just are surprised by that. Yeah. Um, but the real reason that we haven't been able to intercept it is that it's, it's very stealthy. If you've known anyone who has rheumatoid arthritis, all of a sudden they'll start to realize that, you know, usually they'll start in their, their knuckles or their hand or something, that there'll be some pain there or something. They go see a room, they go see their primary care doctor, they end up going to see a rheumatologist and they're prescribed drugs, some of which are pretty harsh, but that the goal of those drugs is to intercept and stop the autoimmune reaction, hmm. right? So you don't wait to go see a rheumatologist until, you know, your joints are destroyed and you're, you're right. walking around like this. That's actually what happens in type one diabetes. Hmm. It's probably a, a, a rough metaphor, but I think it's pretty close. Your wife was developing type one diabetes. She had no idea that that was happening. Her, her, her immune system was destroying beta cells in her pancreas without her knowledge. And probably there was a time when uh, she, you know, she, her blood sugar would be fluctuating and she didn't really know that because she wasn't testing that. And then all of a yeah. sudden she ended up in the emergency room and they told her that she had, she had type 1 diabetes, which means that by that point where she goes into insulin dependence, probably already between 50 and 75% of her beta cells had been destroyed by that point. And so there's not some, there's not a method right now okay. for us to go in and do it, except that there is, 
And what that is, is that we know the four autoantibodies um, uh. that, that are present, that, that can be present to trigger this. And so if you have more than two of them, your odds of um, developing insulin dependence within a decade are over 99%. But this is, is this a new discovery? It's a discovery about a decade or two ago. Okay. But the fact is, though, you have to actually look for that. That that was that would be my next question is like, why does it take somebody well, we to be twenty? Our, but like, there's not an easy. Is there not a is not a startup where you could easily do that at home or something or or with your, you know, if you're five or six, can you not easily just do some type of blood test at your doctor as they're testing yeah. for other things? It yeah. seems to be crazy at twenty two. You find out you have like this massive sort of disease. It seems crazy. That's right. Well, there is there's screening technology that any, that 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 is available. All doctors have it. It's you know the the, the fact that it's not in regular pediatric screens or part of uh, you know I, right. I I just had blood work done this morning for a physical. Nowhere in that regular hmm. uh, in in that regular blood test is somebody testing me for for that kind of thing. Um, but but the technology exists. Unfortunately, the economics around starting a diagnostic company are terrible. Sure. Um, it's it's hard to get reimbursed for it. But the the technology exists, and so one of the kind of things that JDRF broadly is working on, that Humpty Charitable Trust is working on, is much closer to universal screening. And there's an investment side to this too. Mm -hmm. It's actually kind of a, a double negative. Not only are people not finding out that they're developing this disease, but without a population of people that are autoantibody auto positive, but not yet insulin dependent, you know, that like kind of developing group, there's no one, there's not a big population on whom to do clinical trials, mm -hmm. right? So right. If you're trying to develop an immune therapy to arrest the autoimmune reaction. You have to have a group of patients of scale at scale. To have the um, so, so you see what I'm saying so it's a yeah it, 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 it's a compounding uh, a compounding problem. The other challenge of this because I think it's important in any kind of any kind of medical issue, but but also in impact investing more broadly is because let, let's not be all rosy about this. This is there are challenges around this. So think about when you're trying to prove to the Food and Drug Administration or or the right. equivalent in Europe that an immune therapy that you're that you're developing is going to stop the autoimmune reaction. You're essentially proving a negative. At what point does that clinical trial, can that clinical trial declare victory? So you say, okay, well, so Sean has two autoantibodies. Um, so he's at this high risk of developing insulin dependence within a decade. If on, I, so I go on this drug, maybe the placebo, maybe the actual drug. Six years later, I haven't developed type one. Is that because the drug worked or just because it's not my time yet? And how are you going to be able to prove that? And so that's a field that is still developing. Um, the regulatory element of this is going to be critical. What are the, the so-called clinical endpoints that, that, um, that the FDA and others will look at to say that a drug's a success? And from an investment perspective, how do we convince life sciences VC industry that they can get data that's relevant to them that enable them to sell these companies to pharmaceutical companies or to take them public? How can we create a clinical pipeline that creates results for them mm -hmm. that enables them to monetize. And again, that is not a dirty word. If the life sciences VCs don't see an opportunity to monetize a company in which they invest in three, four, five, six years, it is not an attractive investment for them. And so one of the, that's, so it becomes a really big focus of us. And I think it sort of underlines why it's so important to have a fund like the T1D fund 
because we are not dabbling in type one diabetes. We do nothing but type one diabetes, almost 30 companies now. And so now we get to be able to look at what are, what are the systemic hurdles to the impact we're trying to create? One of them is how we can properly design clinical trials in a way that will convince regulators and provide mileposts along the way that can demonstrate product progress, not just for patient realities and for the regulators, but also so that the investors will look at this as something that they can invest in and, and make the return that they expect and move on. Um, and so that becomes a big, uh, a big focus of ours. Do you think the word cure is, is, is a really tough word, I, I think, to, to maybe categorize all of this maybe with, is the, is the scenario being that the cure is something that produce, if whether it's a pill or a shot, whatever it may that allows your body to organically produce insulin or is a cure just a, a much easier way to deal with it as a person who, like, I guess there's two sides, right? A person who has it, that's living with it. And maybe something that, you know, younger, you find out under five or something like that, that now you can do something that's preventable. So you don't have to live with the sort of the lifelong, is there two separate cures for two separate, I guess, categories of of individuals? That's a terrific question. And I think, yeah, let's move to the people who, who are insulin dependent now, because I think you're right. There, There are two broad categories, which are the intercept in the early stages of the autoimmune reaction yeah. so that you never get to insulin dependence and, yeah. and the complexities around that. Now move to the other side, people that are already insulin dependent. So you know there's at least two different things. And by the way, the people who already have it probably also need the immune therapy because my son sure. and your wife, their bodies, for whatever reason, don't like insulin manufacturing cells. And so there's always a risk if you find a way to replace beta cell or you know insulin production naturally, mm-hmm. that the body's going to attack that too. Interesting. So, so okay. we think that if you have type one diabetes right now, you're already insulin dependent. You right. probably will need both an immune therapy and a beta cell therapy. If you haven't developed it yet, you know, hopefully just an immune therapy would, would, would do the trick. But for the people who actually have it now, we think it's probably cures plural, even for that group. It sounds like your, it sounds like your wife is diagnosed at 22. It's, 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 she was actually like 13. 13. So that's actually a really common age. The, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of preteen and early teen is, is a real um, big chunk of the diagnoses. There's a big one when my son was diagnosed that, in the, you know, kind of the toddler range. And it happens, there's a big chunk in the early 20s. And believe it or not, as late as kind of late 40s, early 50s, um, people will, will can develop type 1 diabetes too. It probably wouldn't surprise you to hear then that the manifestations of the, of the disease are kind of different across that. It, 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 roughly speaking, right. the older the older the diagnosis, the slower the diagnosis, the slower the beta cell destruction is. Whereas, and and you know, in the youngest ones like my son, it was probably a matter of weeks or months. That's a gross generalization, but but the disease unfortunately is quite heterogeneous. To answer your question, I, the there's an early prominent way in a company like uh, Sema Therapeutics, which has been which was purchased by Vertex a couple of years ago. Vertex is a big you know, kind of a mid-sized biotech company in, um, in Massachusetts, uh, bought semi-therapeutics for $950 million that was in our portfolio, um, backed by a, a firm called MPM Capital, um, out of research from a terrific uh, scientist and good friend named Doug Melton, who's done research at Harvard for a couple of decades um, in coaxing embry- embryonic stem cells into functioning beta cells and right. then replicating that kind of an infinite number of times. And so the idea would be that you you take 
these derived beta cells and implant them into the body. Now it gets complicated. Yeah. First, you have an immune system. You're, you're implanting them in a patient that uh, has two, two, distinct, two different kinds of immune reactions to that. Number one, this isn't my cell. So our bodies don't like anything that isn't sure. Yep. Second is the core problem that you know people with type 1 diabetes don't like insulin producing cells. <laughs> right. And so the the approach that that companies like Vertex slash Sema are working on is something called macro encapsulation. So you take these you know millions of derived uh, beta cells and you have to encapsulate them in in you know I'm going to call it a pouch that gets inserted right under the skin in a, in a way that protects it from the immune system, but still exposes it to blood sugar in the body so that it can be right. reactive and produce insulin. And so that's going into the clinic. It's really, really exciting. And, and, you know, hopefully the kind of thing that, that can ultimately replace artificial insulin, because it'll be more of an, a natural reaction to that. It's expensive. It's going to take some time still, but the progress is amazing. And, and to have a company like Vertex come in and say that type one diabetes is a really exciting field. And one that we want to get into, uh, was a massive market mover for us two years ago, the, the VC interest in type one after Vertex bought Sama for a billion dollars, you can imagine yeah. what was pretty amazing. We're not betting everything on that though, um, that, that it'll just be that kind of macro encapsulation kind of thing. And by the way, neither is Doug Melton. I mean, he continues to do research on how he can kind of refine that. But we think that there are also opportunities in cell therapy and gene therapy and how you can coax different cells in the body to produce insulin or different kind of gene therapy supports uh, uh, approaches too, including really advanced things that you'd normally associate with cancer and other things like CAR T therapies. And so our, our view at the T1D fund, um, particularly on the beta cell therapy side, is we have to take a lot of risk. We, ha we have to invest in, in some of the most innovative things that are happening in medicine. And one of my favorite things about the T1D fund is, you know, I talked about we want to catalyze a market, accelerate a market, and then ultimately guide that market. What we're starting to see now is that we're not having to work particularly hard to attract capital into the space. Right. I think that VCs understand this is a great market opportunity. A vexing disease, going to be really complicated. But it's attractive because 20 million people have it and there's no disease modifying therapy. So definitionally, this is interesting. Yep. And so we're seeing all sorts of interesting approaches, but we're not having to go knock on doors to try to beg people to come into this disease anymore. A lot of times people are knocking on our door because they've heard something interesting that they would like to do and they would like to form a company and they'd like to have type 1 diabetes as the first indication. But what they'd really like too is to have us in their capital stack and, and us as an investor, not a big one. And why is that? The core principle of the fund that we've seen successful over and over again, and where our impact comes from, is that when, type, when the T1D fund invests, and this is a reason we had to be philanthropic, when we invest, we bring with us an extraordinary philanthropic asset, which is 50 years of mm -hmm. experience working on this disease and a global network of researchers, clinicians, and patients, all of which are philanthropic, which is the reason we're not a for-profit fund. What we and why we tell our we don't have limited partners, we have donors who give away their money. And when we make money, it recycles and stays, stays yep. within the fund. But the reason we are philanthropic is I think it's important in investing in, in things I've learned from others. So this doesn't come from me. Define what it is that makes your dollar more valuable than the next person's dollar, and then focus on that. What makes our dollar more relevant? 
than the next person's dollar. And the source of our impact is access to this network and access to this expertise. And so even if somebody's going to come in and put 50, 60, $75 million in, the value of having two or $3 million in the T1D fund as co-investors in their transaction and in their investment is really impactful because what ends up happening is they have one of our researchers who sit on the so-called project advisory committee, which is the committee within most of these companies that helps to guide the research and the clinical development and ultimately the trials and the regulatory approvals of, of these drugs. Having somebody that the T1D fund puts in to do that is really, really valuable. Cause like, no, 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 that's been tried. Don't do it that way. We're, we're seeing this great evolution from like, oh, you know, please, sir, please come invest in type one diabetes to wow. now. Um, I actually get cautioned. Don't say that we're attracting all this money anymore because actually the, the, the market is now created. It's attracting itself. We just are now very valuable guides. We're, we've moved into a more sophisticated phase, I think. It's very, it's very, very positive. Uh, I want to end on a few more questions if, if sure. you don't mind. One would be is that I think when we think of, of monetizing, right? We think of, of all these things. I, I think when people feel feel a little cringy when we think when we say those words and i think all this is positive i believe this is the best way to actually go about things i think when people get nervous when we think monetization is that there's a lot of people who right now can't afford medication for for type 1 diabetes right i mean it's very very expensive right i mean if you don't have a decent job or if you you know you just don't have the means to do it you know it's not going to be a great life you know you're probably going to die like you said you die you need this medicine so i think part of me is very very positive at the outlook of the innovation of all this what I, I do think it's a positive outlook but i think having access is a big word to me the opportunity to have access to the greatest innovations in the world right how do we make sure that access to this innovation is affordable right it, it, is that a possibility when we, we have all these great innovations come out, but they can only help people who can afford it, right? That's always, I think, the issue that we always face when, when we say, you know, impact investing, impact and monetization. I think there's a worry there, but I, I think it's a positive thing because look, it hasn't worked so far, so we have to try something else, right? Yeah. So I do think this is a positive one, but yeah. like, let's look at the other side of it. Like, how do we make it positive and accessible, right? Yeah. For those- Hey, who- listen, you are, you, you that that is- an extremely perceptive question, and 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 I'm really glad you asked it. I I've raised a huge chunk of the money for this, so I've spoken a lot with families that have means. I mean, our, our minimum sure. to donate to this fund is half a million dollars. So these are these are families and foundations of means, and they're very interested in this because we have to change the answer on cure therapeutics. Because living on a device, we'll get to affordability in a second, but living on a device. Everybody thinks, oh, that's great. You got the pump now. It's awesome. It's like, yeah, I'm attached to a device for the rest of my life. Right, and, right. And they, they get blockages. I forget to bring stuff when I'm traveling. It, it, it you know, even- It could malfunction. I mean, malfunction. Malfunction. Like anything my else, goes you know? high anyway. Yeah, I have yep. no idea why I'm high today. All of those sorts of things, okay? So we've got to get, that, that has to go away. And the fund now is fully capitalized. We've now raised enough money because when we get returns from our companies, it stays within the fund. We actually have closed the fund. We're not raising any money anymore. And I don't think we'll ever have to again because we just raised hmm. 50 million bucks in the last right. year. And those are pledges over time. And so now with the, the, the pace of investment that we've set out in our financial plan, we actually think that we'll start generating enough capital to, to kind of just That's keep great. that going, okay? Yeah. This is relevant to your question though, because 
now, even, even from a personal perspective about like how I want to spend my time in type one, because I'm not a life sciences investor. These folks are the ones doing that. These things are going to take a while, no matter what. Yeah. We're, and, and I think that we're on the right track. I think that the T1D fund has transformed the, the fight to cure this disease. And now we're just going to have to let this work and have some patience on it. In the meantime, and in the meantime, might be a, a while yet, we have a massive, massive accessibility issue in type 1 diabetes in, in the, the, the absolutely ridiculous cost of insulin in the United States of America, and even just access to basic health care um, in the United States anyway, a huge portion of type 1 diabetics don't even see an endocrinologist. The mm -hmm. level of care is not, is not good at all. The psychosocial element of any chronic disease, particularly a high maintenance disease like this, where they, you never forget that this disease is with you every minute of every day. Those two areas in particular, access and psychosocial things, I think really need an awful lot more focus. And so I think of them, Grant, as kind of distinct. Um, and, from, and let's get the cure engine going because that's going to help everybody eventually. And we're going to have pricing issues with all of that either. But right now we don't even have sure. a therapy. So we, don't, we can't even right, get right. pricing on that yet, okay, on cure therapeutics. And medicine's dealt with that in other situations too. Some have been overpriced and, you know, you have to keep working and, and all that. In the meantime, which I think still may be a little while, the T1D community has to figure out a way to make sure that everyone with this disease has access to the care that they need because no one with this disease, or at least very few people, should suffer the fate my father did, which is a race to see which complication killed him first. Mm -hmm. That's what happened when he died at 69 years old. That shouldn't happen anymore because we have the technology to control blood sugar. Yeah. It exists. You shouldn't, you know, other than a rare case, you shouldn't develop the complications that come from this persistently high blood sugar. But again, I'll use US, US numbers. The, the average A1C, and you know what that is living in, in this world, but, you know, a measure of, you know, kind of average blood sugar levels is, you know, probably 50% too high in a 16-year-old boy in the United States. Right. And they're going to develop eye problems. They're going to develop kidney problems. We have to change that answer. And how to do that is, I think it's just as complicated as the cure problem yeah. because it's tied up you might be in, right. in the United States in a completely dysfunctional healthcare system that doesn't think about these kinds of issues mm. and doesn't provide the proper financial incentives to do that. And so I will say institutions like the Helmsley Charitable Trust are, are committed to changing this answer. And, uh, and I'm, their leadership, I think, is going to be essential to, to, to changing that over time. There's not going to be an easy answer on this, though, because, because of the way, again, in the United States, the health insurance system is set up. I don't want you to make predictions, but for a person living with it, you know, like it's the age 21 to, you know, and above, right, that kind of lives with the pump every day, you know, kind of does the, the remedial activities every day to just, you know, kind of keep themselves alive, make sure everything's fine and they're feeling good and they don't get too up or down. Is there any innovations within maybe the next five years or so that a person living with it, things could get easier and better? And as you alluded to before, and my wife says it, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it has got immensely better, Yeah, immensely better. Can that part take a little bit of a leap as well? Because it's still a bit analog. It's still a bit routine, right? You still have to kind of do all these manual activities. Is there little bitty steps to make life better that you could see that, that there maybe there are startups or companies out there that you see that makes the day-to-day -day grind a little bit better? Uh, yes. I think it'll continue to get better, particularly with the, the, the advent of widely available closed loop uh, insulin, artificial insulin delivery devices. So when you're, when yeah. 
your 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 pump and your blood glucose sensor are talking to one another. And you know, I don't know if she's on one of those yet. My son is on an early version of that and said something that's sort of kind of a happy, sad thing as a father for him to say that, you know, dad, you have no idea what it's like to to consistently wake up with a blood sugar of 110 because the two devices are talking to each other hmm. because you've always woken up with that. But hmm. how different my day is when I always wake right. up 110 versus who the hell knows could be, you know, from 200 to, to whatever. Um, and then also the number of times that he says he'll go hours and hours without thinking about type one diabetes. It's, we have to listen to things like that because that's, that's sort of the mental toll of this. Yeah. So I think that, I, I think, I think as more and more companies come out of this, and by the way, I don't think the innovation really is going to come from startups in this field. I think it's going to come from the existing players where at least our analysis is that there's robust competition among the, the major players, the Medtronic and Tandem and Insulet and Abbott um, and Dexcom. They are the kind of the key players in pumps and sensors, and they are competing for share now, which is a great thing because if they're not competing for share, that means they're not innovating. And so I think you will see sensor technology that gets smaller and smaller so that it you know, is not as evident on your body. The accuracy is already pretty great. The algorithms will continue to improve in the way that the, the sensors and the pumps talk to one another. Um, actually, in the size of the pumps, one of the biggest one of the biggest limiters right now is, yeah. is, uh, is the size of insulin because the circuitry yeah. and the technology is really small, but the insulin is still really large. And yeah. you know the technology exists to to concentrate that to make the insulin a little bit um, faster acting um, because a lot of the manual stuff you're describing is the insulin doesn't really take effect for 20 or 30 minutes in a lot of cases. Um, it will continue to get better year over year over year, dramatically. So one of the reasons C1D Fund doesn't invest in that is our money's not going to matter. Mm. These are these are massive companies that are now motivated by competition with each other. That innovation, I think, will will continue with success. I think that the on the philanthropic side, the thing that our community still needs to work really hard on or the, the access issues and the psychosocial issues. Last question is, uh, what, what is, I guess, success for you? I mean, it, I know it's hard to look maybe a decade down the road, but you know, what would be success, right? What do you, how do you measure that? Is it just a cure or is there other, you know, ancillary things that you know, that could happen? Is it companies going public? Like there's, I guess there's yeah. financial successes, right? And also there's like human successes yeah. in well, all this, right? Which is the beautiful happened. thing about it. Yeah. It's the beautiful yeah. thing about it. The financial successes have already happened. Like, like I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think they'll continue to, and we're relying on those because that's the end, that, that's the literally the fuel for our engine is return from, you know, I said four companies in our portfolio have already gone public. Um, and two of them have been sold to pharmaceutical companies. And so that the financial success has happened. And, and that's, that's not disconnected from the mission side of it, because there's no way that the science gets funded unless people see that you can have monetizable financial success. And mm -hmm. so when everybody says, oh, I don't want to hear about the financial side, I don't just want to hear about the clinical side. It's like, no, 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 yeah. Yeah, it takes one for the other. On the clinical side, though, a decade from now, I mean, it is hard to make predictions. I, I, I would, I, I would love to see a day, you know, and I'd love to see it within a decade. Who knows where you can say that uh, th there's enough screening and 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 a, a, a therapy that intervenes in the development of this disease. I don't think anybody should get this anymore. Um, hmm. In the same way that we're intervening with all these other autoimmune diseases, people shouldn't get this. This while while a complicated disease. It's not dramatically more complicated than a lot of other autoimmune diseases that we're intervening against. And so I, I, I would I would love to I joke, I used to be a damage control officer on a ship. It's like, you know, the if the ship is flooding, you don't you're the first thing you do is not run around with a mop. First thing you do is, you know, shut the valve, close the pipe, let's stop, let's stop having more right. people come into this. 
And then we can focus on the people who are left to try to get interesting because uh, I, yeah. I think that's going to be harder. And I would never want to make a prediction on time. About of course not. Yeah. yeah. But, but I, I think, I think that the first, the, the, I would predict the first clinical success that, that we'll see is, is inter, intervening in the people who are developing this disease. So they don't have to get on these darn devices. And, and I have an awful lot of faith in, uh, in the science, uh, in, in, in all of the fields. And it's just a question of, uh, Man, it's, it's, it takes a lot of money to develop this. It's a ton of risk. It, it's going to require a lot of cooperation from the insurance industry. It's going to require a lot of co cooperation from the regulators. And I think it's why it's so important that you have a concentrated impact venture philanthropy vehicle like the T1D fund that now doesn't have to go out and raise money anymore. We will be this steady force mm. that now I think because we're not having to raise money anymore can also be kind of a center of collaboration because all these other academic medical centers and everybody else that need to raise money, we're not, yeah. a, threat. We're not a threat to that anymore because it's great. We're, we're capitalized. I like that. That's why the vehicle is so important in the structure because you, it's just it's regenerative, you know, essentially yeah. like once you hit a few, hit a few home runs, you know, then you can just keep, just keep grinding without having to, to use your energy to go raise more money. Well, I think I appreciate it so much, Sean. Thank you so much for taking the time. Okay. Uh, best of luck to you and the team. Okay. Thanks.